Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet. Hello everyone, once again you're listening to ESSR Features and as Mika says, relax, take it easy, it's Tuesday, you're listening to one of, maybe not the best show on the network, but you know, the feature shows, they do good, they do, they do good, just the, the fine of this podcast you can you can arguably say, but we're, we're here, you know, catch us on Suplex Retweet on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, join our community page, Check out the YouTube channel. Check out the different back catalogs of shows. Saturday Draft Live, East Meets West, Central. On the YouTube, we've got Book It. We've got quite a showdown. I believe there's one coming up soon at some point. Can't quite mind, but there's plenty there to check out anyway. And if you don't already know who this lovely voice speaking to you right now is, it's Jack Graham. Hi, how are you doing? And I'm joined by two of the co-hosts of the show that I, I usually on twice uh, fortnightly on a Saturday Saturday Draft Live, check us out, we talk about the draft and the shit, but they're here to join me today to talk about one of the one of my favourite pay-per-views in, in recent memory, it was uh, 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 quite a telling time in WWE and a, a, a stark contrast may changed the shift in some people's thinking and uh, David Hockney, glad you yes. joined me on this feature show is that a bit of a change of a change of setting or it's not Saturday Draft Live? Yeah, it's a change of setting, but you know what? I'm considering this a Saturday Draft Live takeover right here. You know, we're going to be running rampant across every show this week, whether it be the feature show, the central show, or Saturday Draft Live itself. We'll be here. Now, that means it can only be uh, one of two people. It's either David Campbell or Scott McLeod. So I'll give you five seconds to, to take a guess at who you think it might be. Greatest filmmaker in my own head is here joining you on this show today. And that's right. It's not David Campbell because when his film comes out, you can be the judge of how great it is. Ten reasons not to make a movie. You know, I'm sure it will do great. I wish him all the best. But I'm glad it's Scott McLeod here, not David Campbell. Scott, how you doing? Well, Jack, I'm just so happy to be here. Sorry. I think I was going to my impression with Spawn. You couldn't even tell it was me. Uh, well, yeah, I'm happy. Just the three of us here. Reminds, us of, reminds me of a golden year of Sajiraf Live before, you know, that goat had to weasel his way back in. But, you know, I'm sure he'll never listen to this. I'll be fine. <laughs> but uh, we're here to talk about a pay-per-view, and it's the the first pay-per-view on, on the blue side of the of the main roster since the 2016 draft, and it is none other than WWE Backlash. The, the, this time, it's spelled quite a, a change and shift as perhaps to how uh, WWE were thinking. We saw a lot of NXT call-ups getting put to SmackDown. It seemed as if there was maybe a, wee, a tier system coming up day where you had NXT, and then you go to SmackDown, and you potentially go to Raw. Kind of like how it would be in the video games, but this, this roster, that small roster that uh, SmackDown had at the time, well, they actually kind of defied everyone's expectations in uh, Blue Raw way, silly. Yeah, for sure. Like, this was a time we know NXT was, you know, starting to be taken seriously. You know, the talent down there was getting to be a lot more popular and a lot more uh, sort of hands-on when it came to the product. And a few names in particular, which I'm sure we'll mention later on, you know, they were starting to get a lot more exposure. And I think the fans were starting to warm to them a bit. But as a result, you know, it sort of resorted to them going to NXT and see who else could we draw up. And that's where we sort of got the, you know, the call-up phase 
uh, where SmackDown essentially was the the workhorse brand, the one where it gave the guys like these, you know, just the the chance to shine and you know grab that opportunity. And this this show in particular does a very good example of that. And 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 Scott, you you may mention the trial earlier on. We're talking about it. There's the they they split up the both Raw and SmackDown quite decisively. They had their own kind of set look. They had different commentary teams they had different belts championships are all going for and this you i i completely forgot about it until we were t- until we were you were talking about it that uh david atunga was in commentary for this alongside mauro mauro and Al. it's just david atunga what a man to forget <laughs> yeah yeah because i think raw was cold uh, cole byron and Corey graves who got his first official kind of his main roster call up and on this, they get JBL, Mauro, and Byron. No, no, Byron. Uh, Otunga. Otunga, yeah. And, you know, is that forgettable? I forgot him, even though you just mentioned him a two seconds ago. <laughs> That's how bad he is. And he's, he was he was particularly unsufferable in one match. And I'll mention more of it when we get there. But, yeah, as I said in our chat, there's a reason I forgot uh, his commentary career very, very quickly. And what's what what what's interesting about this pay per view as well is that we, we all know how the draft went. Uh, John Cena ended up on SmackDown, and he wasn't on this pay per view, so that it kind of allowed for a lot of new talent to shine. And we'll we'll go straight we'll go straight into the pre show. You know, this this uh, card has only seven matches, including the pre show. So I feel it's right to talk about it and giving new talent to shine. Apollo Cruz speaks to General Manager Daniel Bryan at the start of the show and he's uh, Daniel Bryan's kind of giving a bit of a pep talk and uh, just kind of listen up you know you've only just here blah blah Baron Corbin storms in and just starts like uh, shit talking Apollo Crews a bit and a match is bit between the two and uh, uh, Scott I'll come I'll come to you here as much as I liked Apollo Crews in NXT I, I, I do not know why he was he was called up so soon and then when you look at the kind of start of this split he won the the battle royale to being that number one contenders like uh, six pack match I think it was and obviously lost it they kind of showing oh this guy's going to be great and then kind of relegated to pre show so he's kind of main event in the first night then put to pre show and we'll talk about the result in a bit but Cruz I feel had no character in this time perhaps called out a bit too quick yeah I think it's been talked about in some of our NXT kind of look back episodes like uh, Brooklyn and uh, or respect because you look back on those shows uh, and I think it was pointed out I think Sarah may have pointed out or one of somebody else on that show may have pointed out that when Apollo comes out for his debut in Brooklyn he doesn't really look like he knows what to do so he just smiles because he's happy to be there and unfortunately for much of his uh, career up until his character change uh, earlier this year uh, that would be much of his character or just the guy who smiles he's happy to be here uh, and then he has that match against Tyler Breeze which is I think probably his best NXT match and he's starting to look like, oh, maybe with a year of development, maybe we'll get a solid you know, character out of him. But then he's just, before any of that can happen, he's called up. And yeah, like you said, he's blatantly just, he is shoved in there along with AJ and Orton and a, uh, a bunch of other guys. You know, one of these things is not like the other, and that six pitch challenge, and that other was uh, Apollo Crews. And then they even put him in a IC title match against The Miz at SummerSlam. And I remember at the time thinking, like, dreading the idea that they were actually going to fast track into an IC title run. He's going to be one of these guys that WWE like, pushes too hard, too quickly. But well, did I know that we'd actually have to wait five years for him to actually win the Intercontinental title? 
Yeah, that's, I, I think uh, Dave, especially a, a kind of a stark comparison to to Corbin. He 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 brings the darkness and he brings the thunder. He was the lone wolf. Mm-hmm. And he kind of he was probably kind of called up at the at the best opportunity he could have, and he obviously won the Andre the Giant uh, Memorial Battle Royale at, at Mania, and he kind of he, he's managed he managed at this point to carry his also maybe not liked well, but he carried this wave of momentum with him that like. He was as soon as I saw this match, it was going to be Corbin versus Cruz. Both, both, both needed to be on the card, but Corbin was just as was always that level above Cruz for me in terms of like actual character and presence in the company. Yeah, for sure. You know, we've talked about it for so long. Like Baron Corbin is one of those guys who is the perfect heel character for WWE. You know, he's he's sort of like the comic book villain that everybody wants to see get his ass kicked, and. In, I think there's a there's a part of his character that knows that you know he knows he's the villain he knows he's hated by everybody so he's just gonna roll with it and say you know what I don't care I'm a lone wolf I'm like nearly seven feet tall and I'm gonna absolutely batter you every time I get in the ring like and his he actually could back it up in the ring as well you know particularly you know with his short matches on NXT getting the easy wins and pulling off some really really good matches you know with the likes of Samoa Joe uh, Austin Aries at Takeover Dallas as well like he could. Not only could he go in the ring, but he had the character to back up. I mean, not to take anything away from Apollo, because he could go in the ring, but my God, the guy was dull as dishwater. And it's a stark contrast uh, to how he portrays himself now as this sort of Nigerian prince, which actually has character and purpose. Whereas now he's he was just he he was he just wasn't the right fit for the main roster at the time. I think I think Corbin they were hoping he slowly but surely built him as like a second like secondary like big heel on the SmackDown brand and like slowly but surely build him over time because you look at uh, the following year they put the, the money in the bank on him when it was a SmackDown exclusive pay-per-view so clearly at one stage they had plans for him ultimately that's like those didn't work out but it's interesting to see if they like didn't move him eventually over to Raw and like kept the original trajectory for him would Baron Corbin already be like a WWE champion by now, because I think as much as good of a heel mag as he is, he could have been a really great heel champion if he was given that run. Definitely, yeah. But I, I, I the the whole the money in the bank thing is is weird. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, I'll never understand what what happened and how they they made him wrestle without having a top on because he was self-conscious about his belly button or something. Clearly something, something happened. <laughs> something it's happened. I don't know what. That's the old sad stomach, yeah. yeah but, I remember, well, remember people like, there were a lot of people laughing when they, when it came after he cut his hair that well, he's getting a lot of time on Raw because Vince thinks he's quite good looking like, oh he is. He looks better <laughs> with, with, the, with his haircut. It has to be said. And yeah, it was weird. Like I think... They did kind of resent him being main event because he had that pre-show match with the IC title at Mania. I think he would have done with a quick IC title run before getting put in that position. Definitely, but, but I think for for as a, as a pre-show goes, I think I, I, the the match they were able to produce the the, the the no build to it just kind of happened there and then. I think as as pre-shows go to these kind of quote-unquote B pay-per-views. I think there's best you're going to get. We see Corbin one year and again, it just kind of goes to show the kind of, the, not the demise of Crew's character, but the kind of, the unknowing of what to actually do with him, considering he did have such a hot start. 
Mm-hmm. I think they just wanted him on the roster because, you know, Apollo was a big, beefy man. You know, he fits Vince McMahon's idea of, you know, what WWE talent is supposed to look like. But it doesn't matter if he engages with the, the audience or not. He's just, if he looks the if he looks the part, Vince is going to want him on TV. Yeah, but he's a lot more agile than some of the past, you know, beefy guys that Vince has had his eye on. So I think, I do agree, they wanted, I think they wanted both these guys on the card, but didn't have anything to do with them, didn't have anything for them. Whereas every other match on this card, while looking back on it in hindsight, it looked weird on paper. Everything on the card, uh, on the main card, had a purpose. Whereas these are two guys like we have plans for them, we don't, we don't know what to do with them yet. So let's just put them against each other on the pre-show, and we'll figure them out later on. I can't, I can't mind which one of you said that uh, Mauro had a really good uh, commentary line. But was it? Oh uh, yeah, that was me. Was it during yeah. this match? It Something? was, yeah. It no. was. Um, I think Mauro said. I think it was. Cruz wants to ride that Apollo chariot to Mount Olympus. Like, this is <laughs> this is what we say. This is what we love about Mauro when we did the Mount Rushmore of commentators show. It was he always just adds that little extra pop culture or sort of wordplay in that makes that just makes you laugh. I, I, I did. I did enjoy. I did enjoy that that moment. But the pre-show is over. And we're actually on to the main card now. To kick us off, we have the Commissioner Shane McMahon and the new general manager of SmackDown, Daniel Bryan Scott. This is a a, a dynamic that a lot of wrestling fans at the time. I think it's, for me, this this uh, brand split and the the, the the clear distinction team on SmackDown came at a perfect time. I think it came for a perfect time for a lot of people because it was at a point where. I know myself, I think there's, there's quite a few folk that could probably agree with me that they had a bit, their passion was kind of dying out for watching wrestling and WWE in general because it's just, it became too much same old and just kind of shite to be honest. They needed something to change it and revitalise it. And I think Shane McMahon and Daniel Bryan were both kind of beacons of hope in that sense and to like spur something different with SmackDown. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I remember... Uh, I think part of the reason they did Denver Branslet to begin with was the fact that they decided to move SmackDown to USA to be on the same network as Raw, but also they wanted something to you know, make it you know, stand out. So I thought, what if we bring back the brands? But So we've got two different rosters on the same network, so you tune on the same network, but on different nights you'll get different things. And so also that meant more interest, more effort was going into SmackDown because in like 2015, early 2016, SmackDown was getting like unwatchable. Like personally, like I remember early 2016. That's when they brought in Maro as part of the commentary team. So they're kind of planting seeds of like changing up SmackDown. But as soon as they announced that like, Shane was going to be in charge, this is back when we still liked Shane and he was still the good McMahon. Uh, and then they were also bringing back Brian, who obviously it still hurt a lot of people that he had been forced to retire. He was over, and Brian made a point of saying this is going to be like the show for people who haven't been given opportunities before. As somebody who knows what's not like to not get opportunities, even though you deserve them, like we're going to make people like earn. And they also did the whole land of opportunity thing, which sounds like it's something, it's usually something they would like force on you, but actually, when you look at the trajectory of SmackDown, even some people on this show, that ringed true. I mean, I think it was kind of foreshadowing what would come with SmackDown, especially how Shane would be about the fact that he is the first thing you see in the video package and he's the first person's music you hear on this show. But I think it was like at the time it was a great dynamic. It was much better than Stephanie and Foley or an who just didn't gel at all. And Stephanie just basically bullied her like Foley who like looked completely lost. Something I never got used to, and I think they kept right up until they moved to Fox. I didn't like them being called SmackDown Live. I just wanted them mm-hmm. just to be SmackDown. 
it's just because they were moved to Tuesday, back to Tuesdays. Like they, were also, they were always recording Tuesdays, but at least on a different night. They thought, no, we're going to do live on Tuesdays. Uh, but I thought, like, that's fine uh, being live, but just stop calling it Smackdown Live. We get it. Raw has been live for years, but you don't call Raw Raw Live. <laughs> Everyone wanted the fist back, but the most we got was on the video package and the Titantron, wasn't it? Like, Smashdown, yeah. and that was it. Well, the, yeah, the, augmented, yeah. the augmented reality, yeah. Like, you can't have Smackdown without a bit of fisting. I was going to say, Daniel Bryan made that joke on Talking Smack. They mentioned about Smackdown. I remember back in the day, you would think, wow, Smackdown's really into fisting. And you had poor Renee Young trying to keep her composure and not laugh. But I think this this match, they, obviously they run down the card and they introduce the, the, the first match to kick off the show and probably kick off the, the the next era of women's wrestling, especially with what was what began to be labelled the new kind of SmackDown 6. Becky Lynch, Nikki Bella, Naomi, Alexa Bliss, Carmella and Natalia. A small women's roster, but by God, was it leaps and bounds above anything else in WWE at the time and they were in a six-packs challenge for the SmackDown Women's Championship. Dave, at this point, you, you, you see this and when I watched it, I wasn't like disappointed. I wasn't, I wasn't like kind of upset about it. I was a bit kind of meh, but boy, did this, this match change my opinion of of how like the the female roster can actually be used and can be used effectively if given a proper creative direction. Yeah, the, the real catalyst for that was obviously at WrestleMania 32, the same year when they changed the they got rid of divas entirely and they're just referred to as superstars now. And it was Charlotte, Becky, and Sasha that really sort of got the ball rolling. And when when the brand splat happened. Uh, Becky, I think, was drafted quite highly, so it goes to show that you know they were taking her seriously as a as an NXT call up. Same in could be said for like Alexa Bliss as well. You know, two very eye catching talent who would then go on to define the, the as the main rivalry for the SmackDown Women's Championship for the rest of the year. Then you've got sort of established veterans such as Natalia and Nikki Bella, who was returning from injury that year, so it was good to see her back in action. And then you've also got a fresh new batch of talent who, you know, who were sort of there or thereabouts, but, you know, one push could change everything for them and Naomi and Carmella. And what I really enjoyed about this was that all of the women got a chance to shine, you know, to show what they were capable of. And there was a, certainly a number of possible winners out of this one. You know, I think Becky was clearly the favorite with the crowd and with the and the backstage as well. But Alexa Bliss would definitely have been a, a dark horse to win this one, as was maybe maybe Naomi too. And what was also really good about this is that they were given 10 minutes just to, you know, sort of showcase their talent and, you know, just give everybody a fighting chance. And it wasn't until about 10 minutes in that we actually saw the first elimination. And only then within the space of about five minutes, everybody else sort of followed thereafter. So it was a very well-planned match and definitely the right winner, you know, to in terms of, you know, wanting to push that women's revolution forward even more so and send the fans home happy with that result because they were clearly behind Becky on this one. Were you were you happy with with this match to kick off the 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 show, Scott? A bit a bit of an unknown entity at the time, and they were kind of having to try and make a name for themselves to kind of prove that that they that they do belong. There's a reason that they are on SmackDown. There's a reason they're going to make this 
roster, the best roster in all of WWE. Do you think this is the, the right way to kick off the show? I think so, yeah, when you look back on it, because it was hard to know when this match was announced what to really expect. Because you had a mix of women who had been there for a while, like Nikki, Naomi and Natalia had been there for quite a while. Becky had been there for about a year and Carmella and Bliss had been called up in the draft. So they were still fairly new to the main roster audience. Whereas you got to think at the same time over on Raw, the hottest, one of the hottest feuds is Charlotte versus Sasha going at that time. Plus Bailey, who's just been called up at that time. You've got Nia Jax still relatively new and isn't totally injuring everybody she comes across. So it's hard to think this is how SmackDown had to kind of make, it, make its women's division stand out. And I think they did a really good job. And I was happy they did elimination rather than just one faulty finish, even though for some reason once or twice you still had people breaking up covers like you had Natalia proving herself to be the stupidest woman in all of wrestling at one stage by breaking up with things just so he could get a submission in on the same person. I don't know why. But, yeah, I think it was good to have this elimination lit because in the old days it would have been one fault of finish it would have been over in like five or so minutes. Whereas like they just got ten minutes just to showcase, showcase themselves, get matchups you wouldn't have seen before at the time. Everybody got their standout moment. They had Naomi uh, proving how athletic she is by doing the springboard to the outside on everybody. And you were continuing feuds that were going to like happen later on with Nikki and uh, Carmella. Uh, I thought it was interesting given that Bliss would be the one who, who would then go into a feud with Becky. She was the first one out of it. I for- totally forgot about that. But given that obviously Becky was going to win, being she was the most obvious and how over she was with the crowd, kicking it off with a hot baby face win, I think is the right idea. I think if it wasn't her, the person I think was the second most likely probably would have been Nikki. Yeah. Given the cross promotional appeal with Total Bellas and things like that, I think so. We, we, we saw obviously Naomi eliminated Bliss, Natalia then uh, tapped out Naomi, Nikki then pinned Natalia, Carmella then rolled up Nikki straight after. So there's like a nice like kind of pattern of how that went down. And I think Dave, see when it got to Lynch and Carmella as the last mm-hmm. two, there's always going to be one winner. And do you think? that Lynch was the right choice to be the inaugural SmackDown Women's Champion. It was the right choice from the get-go. I think everybody was clamoring for for Becky, you know, to be a champion was as soon as she was drafted that highly to SmackDown. But the undercard sort of feud between Nikki and Carmella, that was that seemed to have got more attention going forward, uh, which made you think maybe Nikki could have been the one to win the title after last eliminating Carmella. But because Becky's always had that Stat, like you know when she's thrown in the feud with Charlotte and Sasha she almost felt like a third wheel in a way but on Smackdown you know this was her true chance to shine as a singles competitor and this was way before you know the man gimmick and stuff like the crowd just would not give up on her they wanted her to succeed and yeah even right from you know when she was called up from NXT I was happy that she finally was given her dues and was leading the charge for Smackdown mm-hmm can I just say, you talk about the man thing, and watching this match, it, it just made me even more glad that she eventually got that run as the man, because uh, the more I watch it back, the whole Iris last kicker thing does not work for me. Like The whole straight fire, calling herself Becky Balboa, it just doesn't work for me. It comes off far too cheesy, in my opinion, but she is still the right person to win. You know, build, The idea of building the women's division around her, as you're establishing it, like you said, Jack, a new SmackDown 6, and it would make it seven when they added Mickey James uh, later on, but at the time, I it was it was a right decision. And for a while, like when you got into 2017, you had three women's feuds 
all going on at once, which was a main criticism of the women's division that they couldn't seem to book a, fe- a decent feud outside of the title. And on SmackDown, even with like six or seven people, SmackDown this period proved you could, which is what made it so, which, which is what made it the A show for a lot of people. And then we, we move on. It's like we're, 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 we're a collective agreement that we're happy with the result. We're happy at how good a match it was for the first. We move on to the semi-finals of the, the tag team tournament to crown the first SmackDown tag team champions. And it is the hype bros of Zack Ryder and Mojo Wallet against the Usos who replaced American Alpha as Chad Gable was injured. And we're seeing this new villainous kind of evil gang lord type bastard shit of the Usos <laughs> that, that I, I completely rejuvenated Usos at the time and probably catapulted themselves to being the uh, they're a good tag team you know they're, they're alright too they are the best tag team in WWE today and there's nothing stopping you at this point uh, so they, 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 they blew me out of the waters I was sad to see that the, the American Alpha couldn't be in it but like the, the Usos I, I had no complaints here Scott the Usos the Usos are oh, I loved, I loved everything from this point with this new gimmick change for them. Mm-hmm. What I thought was cool is that uh, they didn't immediately debut them with new music. Like They had different gear and everything, but they still came out to their old music because they'd only just turned to heal that previous Smackdown. So mm-hmm. they came out, but without the face paint, without the, the dance and everything, and then they would get their new their music they have now later on. And I really liked this change in them because it was, it was sorely needed at this point because... They were just the another team. They were always there and making numbers. They were the reliable baby faces to fill a spot, but they weren't that interesting at this point. And this gave new life to the Usos tag team career. And they would basically be the standout team on SmackDown. Even today, there's a SmackDown tag champs right now as we're recording this, which is interesting. But, you know, I'm just kind of sad about American Alpha because when you actually think about it, you thought at the time, oh, well, they're taking them out and they'll get their revenge later on. But while American Alpha would get Smackdown titles later on, they just never really got that big featured match because they lost the title like two weeks before Mania to the Usos. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as good as this was at the time, we look back on it, you know, as much as a lot of guys were getting off to deserve, American Alpha seemed to be one that fell through the cracks. A, a team that, that probably deserved better and a, and a, a team day for their face and the, the, the hype bros are... Uh, I think they they were kind of along with other folk were the along with other folk are kind of the the epitome of what this new SmackDown direction was all about. They were given an opportunity and they ran with it. And as much as maybe the hype rows weren't weren't light, they mm-hmm. certainly were able to produce good stuff. Like they were they were they were a, a, they were a, a solid tag team to have in that division at the time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. They were definitely a, a solid tag team, you know, if they wanted to have, you know, decent matches. They got a little bit of exposure on NXT as well, because obviously Mojo Rawley himself was an NXT call-up. But um, I don't know, maybe this was too much too soon for the Hype Bros, uh, given that I think simply because I think the fans preferred other teams at the time. You know, they preferred American Alpha, they preferred the VOD villains as well, who they beat in the quarterfinals to make it to the semi-final match. And, you know, when you look back at TakeOver Brooklyn the pre- the previous year, the VOD villains were massively over. And it's a shame, you know, they didn't get a lot a lot more exposure in the in this tournament because they would have made excellent SmackDown tag champions. But as for the hype bros themselves, I mean I'm fine with, you know, uh, Matt Cardona, formerly known as Zack Ryder, uh where he is now, 
you know, because he, he's finally he finally had a little bit of direction, but it was, you know, it was miles away from, you know, being a United States and intercontinental champion literally just earlier that year. The Mojo Rawley, I was never a fan of his gimmick. He just looked like somebody who was just essentially a football player in a WWE ring. And he just drank about six cans of Red Bull before getting in the ring. So yeah. it was, um, and he says, oh, he, he's pals with Gronkowski and stuff. But that doesn't make you credible enough to be a WWE superstar. I mean, sure, it's, it get it get it might get the crowd hyped, you know. He pulls off some excellent moves, but it's not. And I, I, I know we're sort of coming back to WWE sports entertainment. It's not wrestling and stuff, so it fits it quite well. But it was just way too much of a gimmick for him. And the Usos, you know, I think Mauro describes them as the king of tag team moves, and they were pulling off so many in this match, focusing on Zack Ryder's knee towards the end in particular, and the Usos winning with a half crab as well. It was such a such an unexpected finish, winning with a very simple submission hold. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really wish like the Uso had said kept that for longer. You know, added a bit of a submission thing to the game. Maybe they don't use it all the time, but they pull out every so often when nothing else is working. Because you know they showed during their feud with like of the New Day, they can pull out like unique like tag moves like from out of nowhere. So I think it would have been nice to add a submission move and make them like even more dangerous and see how like nasty they can be by like trying to injure their opponents and love how for of all people jbl is the one trying to condemn them for uh, injuring an <laughs> opponent i think with, with with how this this match went it also it went for 10 minutes it wasn't like a a blockbuster of a match so it was clear they were saving them for the finals later on against Heath Slayer and and rhino bank this match did do the the job of being able to highlight the Usos as being heels now and using underhand tactics kind of in the match to kind of get their own their own way. So I think match quality probably not great, but I think the the match definitely did serve its purpose. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah definitely. It did, it did serve its purpose for sure. Uh, I mean, there was a couple of good moves. You know, Ryder had a, a top rope Hurricane Rana. Mojo had that massive shoulder tackle on both Usos on the outside. I mean, those were some good spots, but clearly it was you know it was a means to an end for getting to the SmackDown Tag Team Championship final. I think it helped like create some doubt because also a lot of people were behind Heath Slater and they thought you thought, well it's on pay per view and he needs to once to get a job. So surely this is where the payoff will be. Then you think, but now their opponents are gonna be the Usos who now have this new heel streak, are they gonna like continue the momentum by giving them the tag belt? So they may just think that maybe Slater getting the contract wasn't as clear cut as you thought it would be. Definitely. And we move on to to something that that became such a staple, such a highlight of SmackDown during this era. I'll say I'll say it's changed because there's no I don't think the intercontinental titles being as prominent as it was as it was mm-hmm. like back then. But the Miz and Dolph Ziggler, Dave, clinic after clinic after clinic after clinic after clinic. Every yep. time they did they did not disappoint and then adding in the Daniel Bryan factor to it as well. Mm. Everything about these two and what they were able to do just for me always stole the show. Everything that these guys did, it just gelled so well together because Miz and Ziggler are great pals in real life, so they have amazing chemistry inside the ring. But the true story behind it was Miz obviously mocking Daniel Bryan and that he couldn't compete anymore, you know, because he was using the yes chance, he was using the corner drop kicks. And yeah, just the I think there was the the surfboard moment as well, which I thought was quite quite cool. You know, a lot more of a submission tactic from the Miz, even using the figure four at one point. But 
Miz and Ziggler at this time was arguably the best thing about SmackDown because they put on work rate matches after work rate matches, and this is what led to the No Mercy title versus career match. So the the build was certainly there. I think it just lacked a little bit of electricity. You know, I think Ziggler wasn't a true legitimate threat at this point. You know, not until, you know, the, the, the threat of his career got on the line much further down the line. But regardless, you know, this was a very, very good sort of midway match. And these guys could do no wrong, especially when they're fighting over a workhorse title like the, the Intercontinental Championship. Now, see, now you, you just mentioned that title versus career match. I'm watching that tonight. That is, yeah. that is just, that is so good. But we'll, well, back, back, back to back to this pay per view. This is the kind of the uh, Scott Miz started, like as Dave said, like kind of borrowing, kind of using a lot of Daniel Bryan's moves and mocking them. And the Miz, as oh, like, they need a kind of a, the, your top like kind of mid card heel at this time, and the Miz just elevated what meant to be the mid card heel to, to new heights for me here, especially with the added addition of Maurice as well. Back as like manager, obviously she came after the Raw after Mania when he won that Intercontinental title back and just stayed with him and it became such, such, as, as he says himself, like must-see TV. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as you mentioned, also that No Mercy match, I think that's slightly better than this, but this is still a great match and something that gives Madden bonus points in my opinion is that Raw at the time was keeping like the established areas at the time like Clash of Champions, Hell in a Cell, whereas Madden was bringing back old pay-per-views like Backlash and No Mercy that we hadn't seen in years which for nostalgia really helped me side with SmackDown. But yeah, like the idea of bringing back the AC title, like the importance and everything, because Miz had been holding that belt for like nearly five months at this point, but Miz said it took me this long, me this long to get your attention. And this is actually his fifth reign, and he would go on to become an eight-time champion. And like, it, it made sense why we kept putting the IC title on him for a couple of years after this, because he was the guy who made it stand out more than anybody else at this time. And you mentioned something that used to like be important to SmackDown. Uh, fucking talking smack, you could stay in that category as well because yeah. there's all all of this stemmed from that promo on Talking Smack and Talking Smack was just a great outlet to give people an opportunity to speak their minds and you know not be even Baron Corbin who wasn't known for his talking was cutting good promos and being honest on Talking Smack. A lot of great stuff came from that show. But then Dolph Ziggler got a bit of a we've ever rejuvenation from this because people were starting to get sick of him. They've gotten sick of him again since then, but for this small period in 2016, even Dolph Ziggler was over on SmackDown. That was the magic of SmackDown in the, these early few months of the brand split. And, yeah, I think they even say it on uh, commentary, Maurice is uh, potentially Miz's good luck charm because when she came back, he won the title again. And Miz had had great matches up until this point with, uh, like, that Cesaro. He had a great fight of four, including Cesaro, Owens, and Zayn at Extreme Rules. And then the series with Ziggler really catapulted him. And the thing with Maurice being a good luck charm played into the finish as well. So, you know, it was a good bit of a story and that led on a Dolph reevaluating his career to then put it on the line the next month for that big payoff. So we'll, kind of, we'll, we'll talk about the kind of finish there because it allows us to get to that kind of point at No Mercy. So we're seeing uh, the Miz kind of is able to to stay in the match from a super kick from Dolph and he's able to put his foot in the ropes and then not long after Marie sprays Dolph Ziggler in the eyes with just some sort of canister can, I can't exactly remember what quite it was but it allowed Ziggler to get distracted be kind of blinded Miz hits the skull crushing finale Dave 1-2-3 Miz retains the Intercontinental Championship this match went about eight, 20 minutes-ish just yep. below that maybe I think that 
obviously for at, at the time we maybe weren't sure the the direction it was going to go. We knew it was going to kind of continue, but looking back on it from what we know now, that happened at no mercy. This is the mm-hmm. perfect finish to the match. Uh, it was a it was a screwy finish of sorts because I think it gave Ziggler a reason you know to keep going, but to that point you know it was a very much clean match right up until the point Maurice sprayed that stuff in Ziggler's eyes. So it was it wasn't you know too much interference to really sort of spoil the moment, but it was just a case of two two guys whose work rate was second to none on SmackDown at the time fighting over the Workhorse Championship. It was it was a wrestling sort of purists tight match you know or maybe in WWE's capacity at least you know two guys two larger than life characters just going at it you know with the purpose of you know extending the story a little bit further and putting everything on the line for what wasn't even you know the biggest prize on the show this was the the mid-card title essentially and it was treated just as important as the world title and it was that that really got me hooked on this story mm-hmm. I think I think the story here uh, this match really was that Miz could hang like with Ziggler in terms of work rate and didn't have to resort to cheap tactics but when like Miz, when Ziggler had him like where he wanted him Miz had to resort to that and had to have Maurice get involved in order for him to win so that's the thing that further gets you to boo the Miz that he doesn't need to take these tactics but he ends up doing it anyway and this is the match Jack I mentioned earlier this is where David Otunga really got on my fucking nerves. Because, wow, tell us, tell us. Because, I remember, because it, it brought back PTSD flashbacks of this time of why I didn't like David Otunga as a commentator, particularly during Miz matches, because Otunga particularly really went all in on the Miz here and made himself look a bit of a hypocrite in the process here. Because, I didn't say it here, but I remember later on he would, keep, he would consistently criticise the Miz's physique, which I think we learned, David, from your career. Not you, David Tony, David Otunga. Uh, <laughs> We learned from your career that, you know, a good physique does not uh, cover up how boring you are. Uh, even Mar- Mar- even as the middle, like the guy on the middle, the play-by-play guy, tries to give Heel Mezzi's credit. You know, he goes, you know, David, he has been a fine job, and David Duncan just blinks out. No, he hasn't. Like, yes, he has. He's had multiple pay-per-view defences since he won the belt. You're really, really knocking down your buddy secondary champion there, pal. And then he says all, all Mez wants to do is uh, go on red carpets, you know, with his wife. Like, weren't you married to an actress, David? You know, making yourself look a bit of a hypocrite there. And just, you just got on my fucking nerves. I think it was, I, I don't think he lasted much longer on commentary after, after the study. I can't, I can't, my, my, my commentary memory of David Latunga is pretty sparse, to be honest. I'm kind of glad it is. Honestly, he was so weak on commentary, like, and he was so quiet. He didn't have any energy or enthusiasm behind it. He was just sort of like being fed words, and he just delivered them in the most dulcet tone ever. I don't think he'd ever done commentary before. Like, I remember shortly after the draft, they announced the commentators, the new commentary teams for each show. Like, I was happy to see oh, Corey's getting called up to Raw, and he looked, oh, JBL and Maro, that makes sense. Maro was already on SmackDown. Like, David Otunga, who like who'd been on, who'd been a pre-show panelist. For like months, and they rather thought, "Oh, I get people want to hear what he has to say for two hours a week." Can you imagine Mauro, JBL, and Pat McAfee <laughs> uh, on on commentary? Like, I think that would be like the wildest team you could ever think of. JBL would be that dad who has to watch his two hyperactive kids on the weekends whenever something big happened, with Mauro getting up and going, "Mama me and Pat getting up on the table. And I think they actually did introduce Tom Phillips for a little while, and they had a four man booth which made 
they were done even more useless. But like, I don't know why they couldn't just done, you know, Phillips, Maro, and JBL because literally nothing would have changed. I mean, other than you'd have people who you didn't like, totally didn't want, to, you didn't totally want to drown out. Now, unfortunately, unfortunately, do ha- there is always a kind of point in a pay per view card, at least for me anyway. There is always a bit of a dud moment. And by God, this is the dud moment. We're meant to have Bray Wyatt versus Randy Orton. Uh, Bray takes out Randy backstage, does something to his ankle, and uh, Bray Bray makes the referee force a count out on Randy Orton, and he wins the match. Ten seconds, bish bash bosh. But then, uh, your your favourite Scott Kane comes Yay. out, and we get <laughs> we get a Bray Wyatt versus Kane in a no holds barred match. And and Scott, I know, I know he's, I know he's your fave guy, but this this match did absolutely nothing for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I I even have to admit that. I mean, I was happy at the time, but this this very much was like a match you'd see on a house show. This is a house show main event match. And as somebody who's seen his fair share of uh, randomly announced no holds barred matches at WV live events, I can tell you. Like that has more credibility than you think. Uh, <laughs> literally, literally beat for beat, this is pretty much what you'd see at a house show. And I remember like the day of the, sh- the day or so of the show, like there were all these rumors that the Randy Bray match wasn't going to happen. I think the word is that because this is like two weeks after SummerSlam, where Randy got his head kind of like busted open by Brock. Rumor was like he yet he was still concussed and couldn't go ahead with the match and. You know, they still had him in the video, the opening package, didn't they? Uh, so they had to get him taken out. But I know also like Kane wouldn't have been the, everybody's choice. But at, at, at this point, the SmackDown roster was so thin, there literally was nobody else I don't think you could have gotten to fight him. Like, unless you wanted to bring fucking Apollo Crews back out, which I don't think you would have wanted. But uh, something I only realised on a watchback, this is Kane's last singles pay-per-view match. That's quite mad, like like five five years, and to think he's kind of he's been kind of not obviously he's been largely away, but he's still been kind of in in and about it. It's something that I've never like thought of. Like if if somebody asked me when was Kane's last singles match, I mean, I, I, I don't think I'd be able to say this. I would have thought there'd be something like yeah. sooner than that. Because I was thinking about it, and I think after it's like he was in like I think he's next he wrestles. His next pay-per-view you know, match is, like, I think 2017 TLC in that big multi-man handicap match thing with the Shield. He had a... He was in a triple threat at the Rumble, and then after that, he's mostly tag matches. So... Or like an occasional Rumble appearance like he was at this year's Rumble. But in terms of one-on-one matches, I think this is it for Kane. I don't think they knew that at the time. But I don't know. Obviously, Bray losing wouldn't have been ideal, but, yeah. Even though Bray would get a good run after this with the whole thing of Randy joining him for a while. Bray at this point, reclaiming myself a god, I just thought myself, as soon as I hear Bray go, I'm a god, Randy, I thought, oh god, this is when you were shite. It's always like, the, as you kind of alluded to, there was greater things at play going forward, but we weren't to know that at the time, and obviously hindsight's a wonderful thing, Dave, and we see we see this, and there's not, not much really happens during the match, you kind of you wouldn't ex- you wouldn't not expect from a no holds barred, but Orton did appear and he hit White with the RKO and Kane gets gets the win and you're like, oh, so we will be getting White and Orton at, at some point. But at this point, you're you just feel kind of shit. Yeah, 
it was pretty lackluster for what it was worth. Like a no-holds-barred match is meant to be a bit wild and crazy with some insane spots. We did get a couple of decent spots, you know, with the Wyatt hitting the diving senton on the announce table uh, after using uh, Orton's pose just to mock him a little bit. And there was a couple of good chair spots too, like, you know, DDTing Wyatt onto the chair. I think there was a choke slam onto the chair as well, or a Sister Abigail, one of the two. But this just did not paint Bray Wyatt in a good light, especially when he had the upper hand over an established veteran like Randy Orton. So surely he should be putting away more guys like that. And I mean, sure, it was, you know, sort of screwy finish towards the end, but but it just made Wyatt look like an idiot, especially, you know, when he was saying stuff like, this is what gods do. I'm a god and stuff like, mate, you just get your ass handed to you by by an aging veteran in a red mask. Like you, you look like a chump right now. So it's, but yeah, not great. But if I was being nice, there were a couple of decent spots. I think also it was weird because also they had to find a way to have or not compete. And so also having Bray take him out Given Bray as a heel would explain that. And you notice Orton kept, for, I think, ever so often forgot he was maybe selling the leg because almost as if his leg wasn't really injured. But uh, like it just didn't suit Bray at the time because this was kind of, oh, spooky, saying rambling stuff that doesn't actually mean anything, Bray. So it didn't actually suit his character to attack somebody before a match, which just shows how last minute them realising Randy wasn't going to be able to wrestle was. But we, we move on from the kind of the worst part of the night to arguably <laughs> the, the the best the best thing going in WWE at the time. It was the Heath Slater story. He, he had kids, he didn't have a job, he had nothing going for him, and big big Shino Mac, the, the, the gracious guy that he is, was like if you find yourself a tag partner and you win this tournament, and you become the SmackDown Tag Team Champions, you will get a contract, you know, be an official member of the SmackDown roster. He tried, he tried, he tried, he never succeeded until the very end, where he managed to get Rhino as his tag team partner. And Dave, this this, this is peak storytelling, man. This is unreal, everything that happened for yeah. Heath Slater during this time. It worked brilliantly. I mean, I thought it was a little bit stupid at the time, you know, because Heath Slater's always been portrayed as a bit of a comedy character, you know, with the likes of 3MB. Even, do you remember Slater Gator as well when he was teaming with Titus <laughs> O'Neil? Like, that was that was a madness. But this, this was actually something refreshing, and it almost had a little bit of sense of realism about it, because he wasn't drafted. He went undrafted, and he was a free agent. And then Shane sort of gives him a, a situation to say, right, get yourself a partner, win these championships, and then you're on a contract. So it was actually quite straightforward, but it could be stretched over a, a lengthy time period. Like, And you wouldn't believe the amount of obstacles that Slater overcame, you know, just to reach that point. You know, he's uh, he and Rhino defeated the headbangers of all teams <laughs> to in the quarterfinals. Like the legendary Attitude Era team, the headbangers, just to move forward in this tournament. Like, it's, it's crazy to think. And they even did get the win over the Hype Bros in the original semi-final before the, the second chance match. I was worried they were going to fall at the last hurdle when I remember watching this live, because I think, you know, maybe the, the new heel term of the Usos might add a bit of a curveball. But no, the storytelling was there from start to finish. Uh, you know, he was the one who was getting beat down most of the match, and then Rhino comes in to sort of, you know, keep the ball rolling a little bit. And that gore towards the end as well, that was... You know, the, almost the culmination of all his hard work. You know, he was uh, 
took out one of the Usos just so he, Slater could get the pinfall in the end. You know, it was good that he got the pinfall as well because it's like he did the achievement with a little bit of help from his from his partner. But yeah, this was this was arguably one of the best stories told. Uh, that SmackDown had in 2016, and it gave Slater a new lease on life as well. I think, I think Scott, from I've I've never backed a wrestler as, as much as far well. probably backed Heath Slater during this time, and I think it was it was at a point where I I've, I've mentioned before I was maybe falling slightly out of love with wrestling, and I was needing something to kind of kickstart it, and SmackDown probably was that, especially with with, with Heath Slater, the way that we were able to tell this story. Unfortunately, kind of. Afterwards, maybe it wasn't as great, but the build up to him getting to this point, this match, the outcome of the match, what that was able to do, it was everything was like near on perfect. Mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm someone who believes that nobody is beyond saving with the right booking. Like you can book some like shit for years, but then with one good story, I think can really revitalize somebody's career. And like, which and further demonstrates the value of a good story and good fucking booking. Uh, and Slater again is a prime example of this because, yeah, Slater was a chronic guy. He was a bit of a joke, and then he got this storyline, and he was going between Ron Smackdown, begging for a job, getting more and more desperate. And he got he had a thing with Brock Lesnar and Paul Heyman, where Brock Lesnar obviously said, "I don't give a shit about your kids <laughs> before beating the hell out of Heath Slater." And then the thing teaming up with Rhino of all people, like WWE loves an odd couple tag team. And you remember what talking about Brock Lesnar when he beat up Randy and he had that weird finish and he had the referees coming out. He had people chatting, We want Slater. Like, so in the main event, sometimes people are chatting his name. That's how over Slater managed to get this time. And, you know, there are a lot of people who are debating should they get it going longer? Should they have, or was this the right time? I definitely think this is the right time. And Rhino. And the goer and allowing Slater to get the cover, I think makes sense because he's been worked on by the Usos because and gave it makes sense because Slater didn't win a lot. So in their mind, Slater would be the weaker of the two. So of course Slater's gonna be the one that gets isolated. And then Rhino helping him get the win further establishes how much he needed Rhino, how much he needed that partner to help get him to this stage. And I just love their promo afterwards, like this is the happiest moment of my life, other than my wedding and a couple of my kids being born. Because, you know, it's like when Goldberg's, they kept inflating the number of Goldberg's treat back in WCW. Every week there'd be a different number of kids he apparently had. I think that the, the way this match was structured, Dave, I think it was kind of exactly the kind of, the, the, how, how it was produced, the booking of it, I think it was exactly how it should be. Like obviously Slater's kind of ganged up on for the majority of the match. Rhino gets that hot tag and obliterates Jimmy and Jay, proving to be what Scott said, that force, that drive that Slater needs to kind of get himself over the line and also say I guess tie back in when Jimmy's out cold and manages to get the win for the team and win the tag titles. What mm-hmm. what a feel good moment this this is. It was a particularly feel good moment, especially when the Usos had already competed that night and they hadn't looked like, you know, they they'd lost their rhythm. You know, they didn't seem tired or or worn down. You know, it's it's like they were competing their first match or only match that night. And the fact that they were still getting still getting the upper hand in most of that match. I think it's a testament to them, you know, how good of a heel tag team that they can be. And it goes back to what they did earlier on, you know, the master of tag team moves. Like, I think the the spot that stood out for me the most was the Usos double suplexing Slater into the ring post. Like, and I honestly can't remember another time where that 
kind of spots taking place because it's always usually been like a, uh, you know, a, a lift on the shoulder and then just uh, battering random into the post head first or, or go shoulder first, but actually physically suplexing them into the post. Like that's, it was just such a creative spot. And it's, it, it was a feel-good story against a formidable heel team. And I think that's what makes WWE uh, work at its best. It's definitely, definitely, maybe the main match, probably not that great, but the 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 story and the, the, the emotion that, that they were able to to show throughout the the, the entire match, it, it elevated it to that next level and made everyone buy into it so much. And if the storytelling wasn't there, if arguably if it was someone else other than, if Slater wasn't there, you know what I mean? Like if it was just some other random person that wasn't given a contract, I don't know if there would be the same connection to it as what it was. I feel that just everything about it fell into place and everything about it, it was right. I'm very happy with it. Obviously, they did lose it to, I think it was Orton and Wyatt later on. That's right, yep. And the, 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 the run they had wasn't that great, but to this moment, fantastic and I, I loved it and I was so looking forward to what was going to happen next it was unreal but we do move on to our main event of the evening the reigning defending WWE World Heavyweight Champion Dean Ambrose goes up against challenger AJ Styles and I'll come to you here Scott for me at this time not that AJ Styles hadn't like proven himself I felt that AJ was a bit of an unexpected one to to be in this match against Ambrose and ultimately what, what, how the outcome went as well. I thought they may have been a bit safer. Mm-hmm. I think uh, a lot of people, like for the first six months or so, AJ's run, a lot of people were still very uncertain about how Dewey was going to handle AJ. I think like he didn't win at Mania. He got in the feud with Roman where he lost two babies in a row. A lot of people were concerned that AJ was going to start getting buried but and given that he was a TNA guy, he wasn't a Vince creation and everything but then he beat Cena clean I think that turned a lot of people around so I think gave a lot of people, myself included, confidence that he was going to win the title here I think the way AJ was acting and how cocky he was in like using the Cena armband to kind of mock Cena and ward the fact that he's now the, the new face of Smackdown and he should be the WWE champion it showed that AJ why AJ is so good that he managed to kind of almost suit himself into the kind of heel that Vince wanted. I think through this, Vince realised how reliable he was, and that's why Vince felt so comfortable, you know, putting his top title on the guy who was the face originally of what was his top, you know, well, it's the top alternative, not top competitor. I don't think we can we look at how TNA standing for much of AJ's time there, the face of his top, you know, alternative. Uh, at this point, because you know, Mister TNA holding the WWE title, and I think it, I think it helped. Even though a lot of people liked AJ, I think it made sense why they had Becky win at the start and then he before this because AJ was booked as a heel, so you had these two feel good babyface wins to make up for the fact that a heel was going over at the end, and it was the they pulled the trigger at the right time because unfortunately, as good as he was as John Moxley AEW champion, Dean Ambrose had for me. What will probably go as one of the more forgettable WWE title reigns. I can't, I can't remember if it's if it's at uh, at this point, Dave. Maybe you can correct me. But when was 
when was James Ellsworth introduced? Was this after think, this match? I think it was afterwards, yeah. Yeah. I think it was in the lead up to Survivor Series. Because I remember he was at Survivor Series, but he wasn't at No Mercy. Aye, because I felt that, like, also the, the, the way how this match ended, they were going to continue it, but maybe it took a bit too much of a comedic route, especially with James Ellsworth. But what, what's, what's your take But before that, before the James Ellsworth stuff, this match, the lead up to it? Obviously, we Scott's kind of broke down how he's kind of got into this match. Were you, were you happy out of everyone that could have been on the SmackDown roster that it was AJ Styles to be in this this uh, world title match? Well, I'm saying this now as I'm wearing my AJ Styles T-shirt, actually. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I think that the time was right for AJ, particularly. You know, he was drafted to SmackDown. You know, it wasn't he wasn't caught in this. Uh, mix up of everybody under this sort of wild card roster and stuff you know he had a place to stand and it's sort of the place where he became the face that ran the place uh, essentially or the house that AJ built and it's this that was where I think that took off for him even after you know had a bit of an unfortunate running against Jericho and Reigns in the year prior but the win at SummerSlam definitely uh, increased his stock back to where it should have been. And Ambrose wasn't exactly having the best reign as WWE champion. His match was Ziggler at SummerSlam. I, I get what they were trying to do, you know, push new stars, etc. But it just sort of fell flat in its arse. But this time around, it it needed a bit of a shake-up. You know, someone who was a commanding presence and someone that the audience was f- familiar with. And AJ was that guy, particularly, you know, now they had a, his own brand to sort of lead the way on. And this match, I think both guys delivered for sure. You know, as lackluster as Ambrose's reign was, there was some amazing spots in this match outside of the storytelling. You know, there was the uh, AJ suplexing Ambrose into the turnbuckle. That was always a pretty good one. Then there was the the catapulting AJ into the ring post, face first into the off the apron. And I thought I was very, very creative. We got to see that massive springboard 450 with a close two count. And then Ambrose, you know, doing that run off the announcer's table into the stands with the elbow drop. Like there was the the storytelling and the match quality was was what it should be for a main event. But AJ sort of pulling out the win after what was already a a great match with a dirty tactic. Kind of like the same way the Intercontinental title match ended. It was I think it, it delivered especially for a as you just, as you said earlier, it was a B pay per view style main event which over delivered. Mm-hmm. And the, and they showed a thing in the video page of like Ambrose kind of you know mocking AJ for getting crotched on the the top rope a couple of weeks earlier, which I think at the time there was photos of a fool who went to that match and he said that the people who wrestled the dark match wrestled the whole match with AJ still there on the top rope, where uh, which would be something to behold. But I think then that was maybe a callback of Ambrose AJ getting his own back by going after Ambrose's. Uh, testicles uh, and then stealing the title from and then using the sales clash as well to when it was interesting because I think this is around the time where because in the years before there had been some people getting injured and taking the sales clash wrong Reggie was starting to transition to using the phenomenal forearm as a as his main finisher that's what he used to you know beat Cena I was just it was the the the, the start of the heel turn up really, because obviously the Ambrose collided with the with the referee then Styles hits that dastardly low blow and hits the Styles clash and the Styles becomes the new WWE champion and that was not that the fans weren't sent home happy because of what happened before but you you made mention to the on Scott that was they were making new stars and you had Styles your new WWE champion you had Becky Lynch the first ever Smackdown Women's champion 
you had a revitalised Keith Slater with Rhino as your new tag team champions. They certainly set up pillars to take SmackDown into the next the next era of TV. And you know, when they were kind of three corner posts and to get into that eventual point of SmackDown beating Raw in the ratings. Mm-hmm. And I think that it all kind of started from this pay-per-view. Yeah. It's not that there wasn't good stuff for Raw because also like you said Sasha and Charlotte every time they wrestled they knocked out of the park and the other main highlight was you know the rise of Braun Strowman and you had Jericho and Kevin Owens but then again like it was three hours I think the, the three hours is what held Raw back at this time because you know as good as Owens and Jericho were they were just putting the same matches likes of Seth and Roman at that time where Smackdown was giving you fresh matches like even matches that you'd seen before because of how they were presenting them, they felt like they were, they had a fresh, you know, coat of paint on them. And I know you said, and this Ambrose feud would continue to bring Cena back to mix up with a triple threat. And I know a lot of people don't like James Ellsworth getting involved and how he got involved in that TLC match. But that, I think it's a very overlooked TLC match that AJ and uh, AJ and Ambrose have later in this year because AJ matches to pull off a 450 despite the fact he's got just a tear in the arse region of his tights. And he even makes a joke about it, I'm talking smack. That was a TLC. Yeah, no, I'm saying, like, after this. I'm talking right. about if we continue after this, how that match is overlooked. So, I think, just, uh, overall, I think we're all pretty, pretty happy with this, happy with this pay-per-view. And also, I asked on the on our community page, which you should definitely check out, join and get involved in any discussion we have about what were people's favourite moments. Uh, first up, Callum Bennett, which, which I'm sure you'll, you'll be hearing from, from him very soon across the, the podcast and network as one of our new panellists. Seeing AJ, the good old TNA boy, winning the WWE Championship, making him one of only few to win the WWE, TNA, NWA and World Championships. A very good, valid point. We have Anthony Fitzpatrick, uh, saying seeing Heath Slater going from undrafted to tag team champion was an excellent story. The segments at home were absolutely gold. Overall, fantastic pay per view, top to bottom. Our award and saviour, Stephen Wilson, the top 1%, the man that runs the podcast, the fitting end in a Slater Rhino story, peaked it for him. David Campbell says that the, the women made a great start to this era in their match, which he spoke about quite a bit at the start, and he's quite right to point that out. Chris Money. I think what I enjoyed about the pay-per-view is that it felt like a new year in WWE, both in the roster and new belts and AJ getting the title. He didn't seem ready for it at the time, but definitely got there over the course of his run. WWE was very different before and after this night. Ross McLeod said the first two or three weeks of Raw TV compared to SmackDown were slightly better. However, this shows where SmackDown became the A brand. People were just being promoted from NXT or people who had been overlooked for years with points to prove and they knocked out of the park. He's big one, and Becky won in her first of many women's championships stand out for me. Daniel says the rise agenda, shit, wrong year. And plus another <laughs> pay-per-view will maybe speak of it at another point, but I don't No, know. no, no, we, no, we won't. No, we won't. <laughs> I don't yeah. know how that will go. It's fitting how SmackDown managed to, WWE managed to remake SmackDown again with this pay-per-view and then kill it again with the following backlash. <laughs> But he said for this pay-per-view, the main takeaways were the ending to the Sixth Slater storyline is when Moreno, Becky getting his first run as champion and age becoming WWE champion, coming off a great summer programme with Cena. And Sarah said that this women's match to crown the first ever champion. Each woman showcased her skills. Great choice to have Becky's first champion. Of course, Heathy baby get a contract because he's got kids and I'm sorry I kept burping there, Sarah. I will not burp over any answer you give again. And the main event was mwah, Chef's Kiss. 
And then we go, I think, I think Sarah's got it right there. Yep. Chef's a chef's kiss. A chef's kiss for this pay-per-view in general. And that that ends the look back at Backlash 2016. David, thank you for joining me during this wonderful look back at a brilliant pay-per-view. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me on it. And I definitely one of the better B-pay-per-views that WWE's done in the past few years. And Scott, saying to yourself as well, thanks for joining me in this look back at Backlash 2016. Thank you. It was a it was a fun it was fun to get to look back on this really strong era for uh, SmackDown the current year. And I have been Jack Graham. Will you hear me in a feature show again? Who knows? But not this week in Saturday Draft Live anyway. Scott and Dave will have that covered. We've got Central. They'll come up during the week as well. And just you know where to find us. You know where to get everything. If you want to listen to any old stuff, check our website, eatsleepsuplexretweet.com. It's all funky looking and you. You check a full pack, back catalogue. You can check out the Scottish Wrestling Network's interviews and podcasts they upload on there. So we've got a direct feed to our website after a wee joint merger, as they call it. But that's all we've got time for here. We'll see you on the next feature show. Ta-ra, everyone. <laughs>